Amen? There are those moments in worship when you think we can just stop and have communion right here. It's been a beautiful morning of worship. And um, I don't know about you, but I've sensed the power and the presence of the Spirit through worship this morning. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Michael, and as, as Pastor Scott said earlier, we continue our series today entitled, I Am. We will hear in our passage this morning, Jesus tells his disciples, have faith in me because I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As I think about the seven I Am statements, it is, this one is by far my favorite one. I would suggest to you in all of the Gospel of John, it is likely the central statement. If I had to choose only one sentence from all 21 pages that he wrote in his Gospel account, this would be, verse 6, would be the one sentence that I would choose. Here's why. As we'll discover at the heart of this one sentence is indeed the Gospel. But at its core, there's, there's more to it. It's a word of comfort for us who are followers of Christ. When we read this whole passage, we find a word of comfort that Christ has made a provision of heaven for us. He has given us a sense of work and purpose that is beyond ourselves. He has spoken of intimacy with God and He has talked about the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. These are realities that spur us on in our walk with Christ. These are truths that keep us moving in this earthly sojourn, even, even when our world seems to be crashing in around us. And what you're going to hear this morning, what you're going to realize is this. That's exactly, that's exactly what was happening with the disciples. Their life as they knew it seemed to be crashing in around them. As we work our way through this passage and we worship at the table this morning, you're invited, really, we are invited to a deeper walk with God. We're encouraged to see Christ as more than a pathway to these good things. We're invited this morning to see Christ as the central character in God's redemptive story and that He Himself is the one that we want more than anyone else or more than anything else. So as we, we launch out into that grand idea this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14. And we're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 6 and then really all the way through verse 16 this morning. We've already read this passage as a call to worship, so I just want to begin this morning with a word of prayer and let's get started. Father, we pause in this moment. We acknowledge that what we have already read this morning we acknowledge it that it is Your Word. We acknowledge that You are King and that, Father, Your Word has complete and absolute authority in our lives. And so, Father, before we dig in, we just simply pause to ask, would You, through Your Spirit, teach us this morning? Would You, through Your Spirit, convict us of sin and righteousness? Would You, through Your Spirit, lead us this morning into all truth through the Word of God? Father, we want to be a different individual, and we want to be a different family, and we want to be a different church. We want to be more like Christ. So, Father, through your kindness and through your Son, would you please build in us and through this place a deep-seated community of redeemed believers in Christ. Do your work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, most of us have, um, we've read a book We've watched a movie in which we did not like how the ending 
was playing out. Are you with me? Any frustrated readers or movie watchers? We were confused about the plot line. We were frustrated with the writer. Even, even if it was just for a few moments, we likely thought, this is not. Get a little angry with it, right? A little tense. This isn't the way it's supposed to work out. This isn't the way the plot line was supposed to progress. Confidently knowing better, we would willingly offer our services to that writer, to that author, of how to fix the ending in a better way. But to no avail, we are left with a sense that the chapter or the scene is rapidly closing with no hope of victory, no possibility of redemption for the main character, no hint, none, no hint of success to come. But let's be honest. It's one thing when we're in the movie theater or we're seated at home in our favorite chair and we're observing from the outside, the storyline and how it's progressing. But, but let's again be honest, it's different. It's different. It's quite another thing when we are a part of the unfolding story. The emotions are heightened. The concerns are deeper. The pathway is less clear. And our faith seems waning at the moment. And we find ourselves right in the middle of the story. I think this is exactly what's occurring in John 13 and 14. Imagine being one of the disciples. Jesus has instructed that a meal be prepared. They've gathered there in the upper room. Anticipation is building in the minds of the disciples. It has, by this point, been an incredible week. What began as a donkey ride by their teacher, it became a triumphant parade with what we would call a messianic hope. Victory was not that far away. Rome, Rome would soon be rebuffed. Israel would regain its sovereignty. Jesus would become king. That was the anticipated plot line. But then a twist arose. The soon-to-be king bows and acts as a slave in the washing of the disciples' feet. They're told there in the upper room that a betrayer exists in their midst, and to their dismay, the one who had proven himself to be a leader amongst the disciples is told that he will deny Jesus. And if all of that wasn't enough, Jesus tells them, where I am going, you cannot come with me right now. What? Did I hear you right? Our anticipated king is doing slave work. One of us is a betrayer. Another one is a denier. And we are left with everything. We've left everything to this point to follow Jesus over the last three years. And now, Jesus, are you sure you're telling us we can't follow you where you're going? That's the setting in which we find our passage this morning. All of this unfolds in a matter of an hour over dinner time. Needless to say, the disciples' lives, they're crashing. Their hopes are being dismantled. Their expectations are being adjusted. And then they hear just exactly what they needed to hear from Jesus in that moment. Verse 1. He looks around the table. He says, let not your heart 
be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus clearly understands what is going on in the minds of the disciples. And he intends to bring a word of comfort. Let your heart not be troubled. I think he also intends to bring a word of correction to these men. The word of correction was centered in the perceived plot twist. The story is unfolding and it is doing so according to God's eternal plan. Oh, nothing's changed here. Redemption, not only for Israel, but for the world, will come through my death, Jesus says. I will be crucified. I will die. I will be buried. And I will rise again from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. This, disciples, has always been the Father's plan. It's a word of correction. That the way to victory, the way to life, as we'll talk about, was through death, the cross. But he also offers a word of comfort. In that moment, in that room, on that night, Jesus provides this beautiful word of comfort and hope in the midst of the disciples' turmoil and in the midst of their confusion about the plot line of salvation history. They hear a reminder to have faith in God and have faith in Jesus, the Son. Oh, it is simple, but necessary in that moment. These disciples needed their attention to be redirected to Christ. Not not just the hope of what He could and was accomplishing, but their attention, as often is the case in our own lives, needed to be redirected to Him. Let not your hearts be troubled. Friends, believe in God. Believe also in Me. Now Peter had just asked why he couldn't follow Jesus where he was going. And next we hear Thomas ask, how, how can we know the way when we don't, Jesus, we don't even know where you are going? Dip in with me into our John 14 passage and listen to this part of the conversation. It begins in verse 4. And you know the way where I am going. <laughs> Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas, disciples, there's no other way to the Father except through me. Now Thomas, I probably would have been Thomas at the table. Pretty sure. Thomas is looking, it seems like, for a road map. He's looking for a clear set of directions. He, he doesn't want Jesus to leave them. They're, his navigator, he didn't want him leaving him without a set of clear directions. Jesus' response is quite different. He doesn't say, well, now Thomas, you're going to head down this road about three quarters of a mile and, and then you're going to hang right at the, little, at the little bush there. and you're gonna... No, that's not what he says. He says, Thomas, I, I, on the way 
Thomas. It's about a relationship with me that matters in moments like these. Believe in God. Believe also, Thomas, believe in me. This phrase, I am the way. It carries the greater weight in Jesus' declaration, but it's no less true that He is both truth and life. John's already made that clear in the opening chapter, in chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In verse 4 of chapter 1, in Him, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus makes it clear to the disciples and to all, including us, who would read John's writings. There is no other way to relationship with God but through faith in Jesus Christ. That is it. No relationship apart from faith in Christ. Now listen, for the disciples' ears, this certainly would have sung a note of exclusivity in the disciples' culture. And it rings the same note in our culture. Jesus is strikingly clear. There is no other means of salvation but through faith in Me. There is no works. There is no other God. There is no other way except through Me. Listen church, we live in, the fancy word is pluralistic society. Multiple ways to God. And in our society, exclusivity, the exclusivity of the gospel is rejected. It's called narrow-minded. It's intolerant according to society at best, while at worst it is hateful. We're not surprised by these statements. But let's be clear, church. Those are statements. Those are lies from the evil one. And it is the evil one who has sought to deceive the world through false religions. There are many ways to God, is what he would try to convince. But Jesus is very clear. I am the way. If you're here today and you think there's any other way, be begged this morning. I'm begging you, change your mind. Jesus Christ is Himself our salvation. It is about a relationship with Him in a real and a vibrant and a personal way. If you're here and you don't, know faith, you don't have faith in Christ, it is as simple as believing that He came, lived, died, and rose again as the Son of God, as God Himself. If you will believe that, He will grant you forgiveness. He will grant you, as we talk about, life. Abundant life. So believe. The gospel is exclusive. The world hates this message of exclusivity. But my friends, it is what we must share. And there's joy. We know it. There's joy in that truth. Well, Jesus' word of comfort, I think, in this moment, is so sweet to the ears He makes it known to His disciples that relationship with Him brings for them a great hope for a greater place in the future. So relationship with Christ, the word of comfort, there is a greater place to which you are destined. Look in verse 2. In my Father's house, He says, are many rooms. 
Don't you love that? He says, look, heaven's not limited. We, we got plenty of space, right? That's really what he's saying there. He says, there's plenty of room. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Do not let your heart be troubled. You know, Father's house, there's many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is saying to the disciples, listen, there, there is a real place. There's a place past this earthly sojourn that you are destined for. I realize your world is falling apart right now. I realize you are totally confused. You think the plot has been turned upside down, but oh, it has not. There is a beautiful eternity waiting for you. There is heaven. Listen, this is what you need to know from this. Heaven is a real place. Amen? It is literal. It's not some state of mind. It will be a literal existence for us. An embodied, literal existence for all of eternity. That's ultimately what the new heaven and new earth produces for us. Jesus says, listen, heaven is real and it is a greater place. But I love this. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus isn't saying, listen now, I got to go, you know, my father's got this. So in the King James, if you're reading that, it will likely be translated mansion. That's probably not the best translation, but it certainly gives us an image, correct? In the father's house, there are many rooms. Jesus isn't saying like, I got to go uh, touch up the paint for you. It's, 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 it's been there for a while. It's chipping in some corners. I got to go touch up or I know you're coming, so I got to get ready for dinner. And I, I got to make sure all the bathroom trash is, is emptied out. Do y'all have a routine in your home before people come to the house? Yeah. Oh my, you got a checklist, right? Some of you do. No, Jesus isn't saying I got to go tidy up for you to come to heaven. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, what are you saying is this? The preparation is through the cross and the resurrection. That's how I'm preparing the way for you to a greater place. And I love, oh, there, we could just live in verse 2 and 3 for the weeks to come. Look, look at the next little part. He says, I will come again. This morning we'll celebrate the table. And part, as you will hear me say, part of the celebration of the table is not only looking back to what Christ has done on the cross, it is a looking forward to the wedding feast. The day when we will sup with Christ in His presence. Christ. Church, listen to me. Jesus is coming again. And we will be with Him. There's the promise of a second coming embedded here. And it is throughout the New Testament. It is clear that Christ comes again. So he brings a word of comfort in the midst of confusion. And he says, listen, I'm going through the means of the cross and resurrection to prepare for you a greater place. But he continues that. He says, listen, he said, let me make it known to you that a relationship with me not only brings a greater future for you, it brings now a greater intimacy with God. It's, it's a good thing that I go away, disciples. Because listen, verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. I don't think this is a doubt that he 
knows that there's just some confusion amongst them. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Don't you love that? Like, hey, look, just make the Father materialize right here. Like, that's all we're asking. It's not that big of an ask, right? Just show us the Father. It reminds us of Moses wanting to catch a glimpse of God. God's glory. God's presence. Well, the Father's kind and gives him a, a small glimpse. Isn't that the heartbeat of all humanity? Certainly of believers. A desire to see their Maker. I don't know about you, but when I think of eternal life, I, eternal future, it, it's, yeah, the beauty, the place, the sense of, uh, edonic sense of it is, is a wonderful idea. But it's, but it's presence. It's, it's, it's seeing Christ embodied. I look forward for that. Philip says, just show us God. <laughs> Have I been with you so long? There's a little sadness here. Have I been with you so long and you, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I speak on my own, uh, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His work through me, in essence. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works that you have seen me do. In these few verses, Jesus speaks of multiple things that are important to us. One, He speaks of the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe this. Believe this, Philip. Believe this, Thomas. Believe this, Peter. Believe this, John. Believe this is reality. And Jesus makes clear to them, listen, it is the Father in me and it is the Father's words through which I speak to you. It's the Father's work in me and it's His words that you have seen demonstrated over these last three years. The Father is using me on earth to speak His word and to do His works. But I think verse 7 really is the word of comfort that Christ offers here. Listen to the last part of it. From now on, you do know Him. And you have seen Him. From now on. There seems to be something in the timing. From now on, you will experience even greater intimacy with the Father than you have experienced heretofore. You're saying, show us. He's been here in your midst. Oh, that gets theologically complicated for sure, right? But we can't separate the Father, Son, and the Spirit. In a few minutes, we're going to hear Jesus say, listen, I'm going to give you the Spirit. But then He's also, in the same passage, going to say that the Father and the Son will come and make, their dwelling with, make His dwelling with you. And so certainly there's three distinctive persons of the Trinity. We have a triune God, but it's one God. It's not like we can... Say, Spirit, come here, and Father, Jesus, you stay there. No, he's saying, listen, there's going to be greater intimacy with the Father from now on in a way that you have just not yet fully experienced. Let me ask you this morning, how many of you as believers long for greater intimacy with God? A greater sense, as we'll talk about, of His presence. A sense of what He would have you to do next in life. Just a sense of His lavish love. His gift of rest. 
The gift of beauty. I don't know about you, but when I'm at my best, if you will, I deeply long for greater intimacy with God. My friends, Jesus is saying, from now on, it's available, disciples, it's available to you. He continues these quick words of comfort by saying to them, relationship with me, in me, through me, to the Father, that relationship with me will, in your life, produce a greater work. There's a greater work, a greater life purpose that lies ahead of you. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I, why? Because I am going to the Father. Be comforted. It's good that I go away, disciples. Because when I go away, there is greater work that you are going to do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That my Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the magic question this morning, what's the greater work? I mean, Jesus, come on. You raised people from the dead. Like, how do I trump that? How, how do I supersede such a phenomenal miracle? Some, certainly early interpreters of Scripture would argue that this greater work, this promise of greater work was the rapid spread of the gospel to the nations. And certainly we can't read the book of Acts without seeing that rapid spread from the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and dwelt upon the believers Jesus had told them, wait, the Spirit will come, Acts 1.8, and you will receive what? Power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. We read the book of Acts and we get to the end. Indeed, the gospel, in essence, at least figuratively, has gone to the ends of the earth. We now see the gospel having moved out of the little city of Jerusalem all the way to the great, vast center of the known world called Rome. So it's certainly not less than the spread of the gospel, but likely in this immediate context of the gospel of John, it probably more likely refers to the work that the disciples will do post Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, the work that they are going to do is rooted in this redemptive, atoning work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, listen, I did great works, but those were all preliminary. Those were all building up to the greatest work of sacrifice on the cross. And in essence, once that is complete, all of your labor is going to be rooted in that wonderful work of atonement. And indeed, the Gospel will move forward. So I've done great works, and I will do the greatest work tomorrow, Jesus is saying in essence to them. This being Thursday perhaps, and Friday death on the cross. Jesus is saying, listen, your work is based and rooted in completed cross work. And there is a more advanced stage, if you will, of salvation history that is to come. And you are going to be doing the labor in the field in the midst of that. Church, that is exactly where we are today. Is it not? God's called us individually and corporately to this greater work, and, and the greater work is indeed rooted in Christ's death 
and resurrection. But I love what he says. Don't miss this. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do this. That my Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The realization of this greater work, laboring in the gospel. Oh, my friends. It is not in our eloquence. It's not in our hands or our feet. Certainly it's part of all of that. But Jesus says, look, it's rooted in prayer. Ask me. Y'all, in in the farewell discourse, which is what this is a part of, seven times, seven times, Jesus says, ask in my name. May we be a church who repents if we've dare thought that we could be a part of building Christ's church apart from prayer. You want to see this place transformed? You want to see this city affected by the gospel? It's not going to happen just by mechanical efforts. It's going to happen because we've asked Christ to do that which He has promised to build your church. So the labor we do, this greater work we do, church, is rooted in prayer. Ask, and I will do it. Look at those seven steps. Statements of that in this few chapters. That ought to inspire us to prayer. We must ask. Finally, the last word of comfort is that there is a greater presence. I'm going to go. But ultimately, what you're going to experience, because you have relationship with me, I am the way, relationship in me, you're going to have a greater presence of God experiencing in your life. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father. And He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you. You you have sensed His power and presence. You have experienced that. Oh, and He will now be in you. Today is, as Pastor Scott said, today is Pentecost This is the day in which we, as the church, we celebrate the birth of the church. We celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. Not only does the Spirit rest upon, now the Spirit dwells in us. Peter stood that day and the restored Peter, the one who was the denier, stood that day some 50 days after resurrection and preached 3,000 souls were added to the church that day Jesus listen I'm going to go away but let me comfort you I I will ask the Father and He will send the Helper and He will be among you but He will dwell in you through our relationship with Christ we receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit and we because of that experience I do emphasize experience we experience a greater presence of God in our lives. In less than two months from these words being spoken, the church is birthed, the Spirit comes, and the gospel goes, and the greater work occurs. The Spirit that we are given, 
He is the Spirit of truth who leads us into all truth. He convicts us of sin and righteousness. He teaches us through the Word. He produces in us love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He indeed is our Helper. And we need Him every day of our lives. In that moment, in that room, on that night, Jesus brings a word of correction to His disciples. Don't fret it, boys. <laughs> I know you don't like the way the story is playing out. Just hold on a few pages. Just hold on. Just a few days. But in the meantime, let me remind you what the plot line from all eternity has been. It is indeed through my death. I've already told you this. It's already present. You've heard it. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead. Listen, there are times when we need the sweet Spirit's correction in our lives. We think, man, this thing is unraveling. We think, surely God is not seated on His throne anymore today. Look at my life. Look at what's unfolding. Surely something has been turned upside down. And we need the sweet correction. Hearing the Spirit say, no. Oh, no. No. Let's play it out. Just hang on. Hang on. I'm going before you. I'm working the gospel out in your life. I'm, I'm forming you and shaping you in the perfect image of my son, Jesus Christ. And it's because you have a relationship with me through him that you can have confidence in this. We, at times, need that correction. And we almost always need these delightful words of comfort. Indeed, there is a greater place for us. Indeed, there is a greater intimacy and presence of God available to us. Indeed, there is a great work that we have before us. We can't accomplish it apart from Christ's presence. We can't accomplish it from apart from the Holy Spirit's power. And we certainly ought never to try and attempt it apart from deep prayer and asking of Christ to do His work in us and through us. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. Is that your desire this morning? I want to live for you. I wrap it up this way. Relationship with Jesus, it's our greatest need. And our greatest comfort. Relationship with Christ is our greatest need. So if you're here today without Christ, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, there is no other way. Believe on Christ's work and you will be saved. And He is indeed, for us who know Christ, He's our greatest comfort. Turn toward Him. Sense Him. Father, we thank You for these few moments. We're delighted. We're delighted by Your Word. We're delighted by Your gift. We are delighted by our relationship with Christ. Thank You. Thank You, Lord Jesus. As we begin to celebrate and rehearse at the table this morning what you have done, we just simply want to tell you thank you. 
Thank you for your atoning work. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the work of the Spirit. Thank you for the suffering and the shaping in our life. Thank you for the gift of the Word. And thank you this morning for the visual reminder that we get to actively participate in this morning as a group of believers. Teach us even through this experience this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen.